In this city, there's crime on every street. But one man has seen enough. He's Lieutenant Frank Drebin. Whatever scum did this, not one man on this force will rest for one minute until he's behind bars. Now let's grab a bite to eat. He's a good cop who's having a bad day. His best friend... Oh, everyone should have a friend like you. ...is in a coma. As soon as Nordberg is better, he's welcome back at police squad. But I wouldn't wait until the last minute to fill out those organ donor cards. His girlfriend asked him to look her up. Nice beaver. Thank you. I just had it stuffed. Let me help you with that. And his city is in the hands of a master criminal with a sinister plan. I must kill the queen. How can any police story contain this much action? This much romance? I like cops. Or this much baseball. Starring Leslie Nielsen, a cop who's always on the alert. Mikhail Gorbachev. I knew it. Queen Elizabeth, everyone's favorite queen. Priscilla Presley, a woman who really cooks. How hot and wet do you like it? Ricardo Montalban. Frank. You're both right. George Kennedy, the partner with an appetite for danger. O.J. Simpson, as you've never seen him before. And Reggie Jackson in his first dramatic role. In a movie so big, it had to be filmed in color. The Naked Gun, from the files of Police Squad. See you then. Okay, welcome to Movie Night Extravaganza. Uh, tonight, we're going to be doing our long-awaited episode about The Naked Gun, 1988, one of my favorite movies. Um, originally, we were going to have uh, Natalie Scher come on, which, you know, I think we're going to have her come on at some point next week to talk about the second Naked Gun movie, because um, that's her favorite one anyway. But I thought it was going to be really hilarious to, uh, to like, because she does so much, um, like, really serious journalism. And like so much serious writing and i thought it'd be really hilarious to have her on and just talk about the naked gun during a pandemic um but of course i'm joined tonight by my uh great and talented co-host the the uh the acclaimed italian opera singer and baseball umpire enrico palazzo um <laughs> and of course um i don't know how we got this guy um you know professional ice hockey winger and the captain of the new york islanders um you know uh, Anders Lee. Anders Lee here. So are we talking off season or uh, salary caps or Islanders <laughs> squad? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, all of the above um, hockey stuff. I, you know. Yeah, I've been w wanting to do, you know, Dan Marino had uh, Ace Ventura. Uh, there's some athletes in this movie. I think it's time that um, the Islanders let me shoot the climax of a film during a game. Yeah. All right, so you're going to be on lobbying for uh, to be in the son of the naked gun, which uh, that's which right. apparently is a, is a thing that's I didn't know that. that oh, was a thing. it's in the works. Yeah, um, yeah. I think they're they're going to have they want to have Bruce Campbell. Um, Andy said play uh, no play, way. yeah, play Frank Drebin's son. 
I know, I know. Bruce Campbell posted a deep fake on his uh, on his Instagram, which is brilliant. Um, but I, I don't know if that's anything more than that. That's that's what I'm pulling for, anyways. Yeah, he would be. No, perfect. all right. I'm gonna do the the serious. Um, you know, Anders Lee is a comedian, writer, and the co-host of uh, Pod Damn America and Redacted Tonight. Um, Thank you, Anders Lee here. <laughs> yes, and I, in case people are not hockey fans, I have the same name as a. Uh, professional hockey player who's actually from the same state as I am. And we are the same age. So I've been hearing about this guy since I was 14 years old. <laughs> yeah. So it's probably like, uh, you know, someone, I, if someone introduced me as like, you know, Forrest Gump or something and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a dumb <laughs> joke, but you know, I mean, it's, it's the naked gun style humor, I think. Mm -hmm. Or the yeah, whole but... Andy, he's got the whole world in his hands world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But um, I get you know, I, so so Anders this is the first time you watched The Naked Gun, right? Um, uh no, I had actually uh seen it a couple of times. I think we rewatched it with my girlfriend with, with during the pandemic. I'm pretty sure we did. Yeah, uh, but I, I first saw it when I was a kid. Um, I got it from the video store, and uh, it usually doesn't kill his wife. Ooh, <laughs> wow. Oh, is it? Did another hockey player do that or something? No, it's the tabloid story that's going around about the girl they just found in the, Gabby Petito. Or, or no, wait, maybe I'm, or maybe maybe Kenzo is referencing another hockey player. I don't know, but okay. Um, uh, no, that's not that's not a wife and her lover. So, oh no, it's an OJ reference. Holy shit! I'm really slow today. I see. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I've been, I've been, that makes sense. <laughs> I should have gotten that too. Yeah. Um, actually, this was my first exposure to O.J. Simpson because I remember watching this movie when I was like seven or eight or something. And uh, we didn't have a lot of TV in the house when I was little. Um, but my parents, my dad worked in radio, so we'd listen to the radio a lot. And so I, I remember in the 90s hearing about the O.J. Simpson trial over and over and over again. Yeah. And I never saw it visually. So I would just pictured a yellow guy like an adult version of Bart Simpson running around with a knife. That's what I thought <laughs> OJ Simpson looked like. And he's then not, he's not, he's not black. He's, he's, he's OJ, you know, he's yellow. There you go. Orange yeah. He's the juice. Orange man. man. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember uh, I was a freshman in college when the uh, trial was going on and um, I came back from class and, and I walked into the lounge and uh, my friend LeBannon was sitting there and I, and I love LeBannon. Just imagine a six foot five, 300 pound Steve Urkel and he got LeBannon. And he just looks at me and he goes, Andy, the juice is loose. <laughs> like it's like burned into my brain. So anytime uh, OJ Simpson comes up, that's that's all I can think of. The juice is loose. Right. This is, I mean, voice. this this movie's interesting because it clearly is um it, it clearly is a an attempt to um get OJ to have like an one of one of the same kind of uh, acting careers that someone like Kareem Abdul Jabbar um had when he was an airplane like you know what i mean like uh, it's it's like the friendly like the, the super friendly athlete that is like down to do comedy and like right. expanding kind of the franchise or the brand of um that athlete for you know i mean as as their football career is over or you know like it's clearly an attempt to make oj look um to make oj look look uh like i guess hospitable to being in comedy and like to, to being like oh like you know just like this funny guy and so on the other side of it, knowing that, you know, I think a few months after the third Naked Gun movie, which he's in, um, this whole thing took place. It's kind of, you know, horrifying 
to see um, how much they really include him in the series. Yeah, it because it, it, yeah, that was the the big revelation to me was that O.J. Simpson was an actor, and that's why it was such a big. Well, he of course was an athlete and then an actor, but I didn't know anything about him. I just knew he was uh, a killer, an accused killer. Um, so that was that was interesting too. That he's this big star and then turned out to be a uh, probably a murderer. Um, yeah, I mean most 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 likely a, a murderer. If so, he right. did it. it if he did it. Right. <laughs> it's possible that the murderer is still out there, and that's why I think he moved back to L.A. Right to track him down or her down. Um, but yeah, that was kind of a. Uh, it, it's hard to think of who that would be today because I guess there are athletes here and there. LeBron, of course, was just in Space Jam, yeah. but. No one with the same level of talent, really, as as OJ had and has as a performer. You yeah. know, he just exudes charm. It's like I watched his, you know, the Made in America documentary, which is great, and just him talking to the judge about, like, you know, I used to come to Nevada as a young boy, and I respect your state. Like it, it's <laughs> you get sucked into it a little bit because he's so likable somehow. Yeah, and it's like, how can you really believe that somebody who's, yeah. you know, I mean, it's the sheen of celebrity too. Like, how can you really believe that this celebrity is capable of doing, um, like, like doing something this evil and something this horrific? Because, like, look, he was in the Naked Gun, and like, you know, you saw him on TV all the time, and he's charming and he's nice, and and it's this celebrity kind of uh, is almost like it 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 almost shields you from accountability in such a like horrific way that I, I think. Um, I, I think that that was kind of a, a very rude awakening for a lot of people. And obviously um, the OJ trial like opened a lot of racial dividing lines too. Um, right. But like, but, but I think, you know, the, the, in retrospect, the idea of celebrity as this kind of shield that kind of gets you out of like, um, like how far can you really push the accountability of it and how far can you really mask yourself um, yep. in, in these situations? So this is, this is Leslie Nielsen talking about OJ Simpson and, and wondering like, pondering out loud about the person that he met while filming the naked gun and, and, and wishing that he knew for sure, like what had happened. So this is just an interesting clip I found. With you, because I, I see you and I start to laugh. <laughs> You're not funny looking, but I mean, it's just that I see you and I have such good feelings from things that I've seen. I start laughing. I yeah. did it the other day when you came in the room where I, I thought of Drebin and I started yeah, laughing. But this, is, but this is what happens with that, that humor. There seems to be an affection that travels with the humor. I think it's because Drebin is totally non-threatening and pursues his life as though he's the Mike Tyson of the police department. Mm -hmm. I mean, nobody can oppose him. He's oblivious. And he's totally he? consummate mm -hmm. obliviousness. That's it. And there, that is what seems to happen with the but character. But what is weird watching Naked Gun, and I just watched another one the other night, and it had to be strange for you is this whole OJ thing. It must be strange. I mean, that must be really well, weird. It's sad. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's not. You know, it is strange. You know, it is. And it's very unusual. Very but, unreal. Huh? It's yeah. Very unreal. But uh, yeah, um, I, there are no winners. And were you shocked two, when you found out about when you? I was the chase day or wherever you were when you saw that. Could you believe that it was real? Well, the man I had worked with in uh, Naked Gun was charming and witty, and uh, there was nothing ever that would indicate in any way that he could possibly be uh, uh, the person who would do that kind of thing. So, you know, so here he is all of a sudden accused of it and on trial. And 
it just, uh, I suppose anybody can stamp, but uh, I never saw that person. Yeah, that had to be strange with people who had really worked with him and been around him. It must be very odd. Yeah, I just, you know, would, I just would like him to stand up and, and tell me. Mm -hmm. But so far, I've had nothing that, uh, for me, as a, a one of his compatriots in uh, Nekigan, nothing. Uh, I've had no answers, you know, and it's very difficult uh, because, uh, well, I mean, OJ is in that, in that position today. There are many, many people who don't agree with his liberty at this stage. So that's something, who knows, uh, maybe there will never be any answer for anybody, or maybe the answer has always been in front of us. It will, But it would be nice to know something. Ooh. Hot sheet. <laughs> he, he really did not want to answer any of that. It's interesting you know? too cuz that's the only that's the only clip I could find of um Leslie Nielsen ever answering any questions about OJ. Uh, so you have to think that um <laughs> you you have to think that at some point after that interview he was like, "Listen, I'm not if anyone asks me any questions about OJ, I'm just not going to answer." Like, you know what I mean cuz right. it, it's like you think that number you think number one he'd be prepared with some kind of answer, I guess, but like being taken off guard like that like and then never being asked about it again. You, you'd have to think that like there's some kind of list that they give and say, "Hey, like, don't ask him any OJ questions. He's not. He doesn't know. He doesn't know anything." Like, yeah. Um, when was this interview from? Uh, I think 1997. It's uh, well, there's Spy Hard. That yeah. that's when Spy Hard came out. 97. Was so. that part of the Naked Gun franchise? Because I remember watching that too. Yeah, I remember watching right. that as a kid as well. Because I remember I watched all the Naked Gun movies and. It, it was not a. Oh yeah, that, it had the Weird Al theme song too. Um, I think it was '97, '96, I guess. So it was, it was like okay. you know, pretty, pretty close right, to the whole right. OJ trial. Um, yeah. But I remember, I remember watching that movie and it was bad. Like it was, it was like bad, like past the point of like what I can accept from like uh, even, even like satire or, or something. And mm. <laughs> I think I was forgiving of it because my main criteria for movies at that point was still action and like comedy was a nice bonus. So I would rent, you know, comedies as long as they had violence in them and spy hard from what I remember, definitely had uh, a fair amount of, of shooting shooting. Yeah. Um, but were, were you guys like, I, I doubt this is the case, but were you as dumb as me? And that when after, the first naked gun, there was naked gun two and a half, and then 33 and a half. Were you also like, I missed a bunch of these? There must have been, there are like 30 uh, naked guns that I missed. They just went from two and a half to 33 and a half. How is that possible? So I, so I had an interesting first encounter with naked gun. Um, I, Leslie Nielsen was my grandpa. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> no, so I, I was on vacation one year, and my family would go to Maine every year, and there wasn't really anything to do. Like, we barely got cable there. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it wasn't like, you know, so every year they'd have a library sale. Um, and this whole island was just, like, old people. It was, like, an island off of a town, and it was all, like, old people. But, you know, you'd go to the library sale, and they'd have, like, video cassettes. And because it was my grandpa's house after he passed away, he still had, like, a VCR and stuff. So I'd buy videos to, like, watch there. And I bought all three naked guns, like, not knowing even what they were. Um, just like, oh, this kind of looks funny. And, like, I've seen Scary Movie 3, and, like, Leslie Nielsen was in that. And... So I bought all three of them and watched them one summer. And I remember thinking they were like the funniest thing ever. Cause I was, I had to be like 11 or 12 or something. Like I was, I was like young enough that I was like, this is the funniest movie I've ever seen. But um, yeah, 
I, I was uh, in sixth grade when this movie came out, and I just remember everybody was talking about it, and I totally missed that this movie existed. Like, like I never saw any of the TV advertisings or anything like that. And, and so I felt out, completely out of it because I just moved from uh, Georgia back to Texas. Um, and uh, at some point, I know um, uh, my friend uh, Gabriel Horn, who's an actor and uh, uh, director now in Hollywood. Um, but at some point, the two of us watched that mo uh, movie uh, together because I, I distinctly remember just like watching it with him and, and just like like us like reciting lines from the movie together and, and stuff like that. But, uh, uh, and there's so many know. good lines. Like if you're a kid oh, and you, you watch that, like, of course, like the best one is nice beaver when she, yeah, right. <laughs> like, I just, thanks. I just had it stuffed. <laughs> yeah. No. And then, um, so, so, you know, I was, uh, wait, how old was I when, uh, cause, cause I, I was been in high school uh, or, or junior high whenever, um, Nikki gun two and a half came out. Um, which I, I didn't enjoy as much. I, like there was some diminishing returns in that movie, mm -hmm. but you know, not enough to say like, don't watch it or anything like that. And, yeah. uh, uh, I was definitely in high school. Third one, and then the third one's kind of a little bit unwatchable, I think. Yeah. I, I think, I think the problem is that as the gags, as they kind of run out of gags throughout that series, um, like the plot points get more convoluted. And obviously the more plot that you include in one of these movies, the worse the movie is going to be. Right. Because all of a sudden you're following all these plot threads and you're like, I don't want this. I want the original Naked Gun where, you know, it's simple. Like, you know, Ricardo Montalban is like the villain, which is hilarious because he's another really serious actor. Like, um, you know, uh, I mean, his his career spanned everywhere. But like, you know, including him but, as like the villain. And then Planet of the Apes wasn't a comedy. <laughs> Yeah. In, so, in some in some ways it was but um <laughs> no so like there's just so much ricardo monte like there's just so much um everybody in this movie is like a serious actor like i mean i think george kennedy is the is is the chief like er, like priscilla presley obviously was in dallas like nobody in this movie is really a comedian i mean weird Al, like as we said before we were um you know before we were uh uh on like weird Al is really the one like comedian that's that's in this movie and and but like it's such a, a small reference. Well, which I, I think the best thing about this movie is Weird Al because Weird Al, when the movie was in theaters, would take dates to see the movie and not That's tell so them that he was in it. And, and whenever he'd show up in the movie, he'd be he'd act all surprised and they'd just be like, you know, someone would be mad or or whatever. And just like, <laughs> it's like the, the the thing is those when I first heard that story, I'm just like, dates? Playa. <laughs> I don't want to yeah. imagine Weird Al on dates. I, I like. I'm sure he's a nice man, but yeah, it's it's uh, disconcerting to imagine him doing anything romantic. He just yeah. seems like an asexual being, and then <laughs> it's the best to keep it that way. Like I seem to most people too. But uh, I heard a screenwriter talking about uh, spoofs, and this is a guy who forgetting his name. <laughs> One of the guys from uh, what? Oh, it, it Kenzo's comment, and then you say eat it. Oh, and then he'd say, <laughs> yeah, he did the thing from, yeah, he went to Naked Gun and saw himself in it with the date. And then he reenacted the scene from Diner, I bet. You know what I'm talking about with the popcorn? Not, with, oh, from, uh, not like what Phoebe what? Herman did? A little, sort of similar. <laughs> but have you ever seen Where the movie you? Diner? I haven't, I haven't seen the movie Diner, but I know I've, I've, I've seen the references to that scene with the, you cut the hole in the popcorn. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Then you put your 
generals yeah. in, the, in the you guys should do that movie that's a great great film but um get josh olsen on because he hates that movie oh really yeah yeah you know he's he's uh uh if, if you don't know who he is he's a screenwriter yeah. and he hosts um two really good podcasts and and uh uh he, he absolutely hates the diner and one huh. of his screenplays was a satire of it except about like killer insects interesting so why? like he gets to kill off all the characters from the diner ah why does he hate it so much is he I don't in remember. baltimore is he from dc uh i mean there's not really that kind of rival in, in baltimore and dc i don't think because mm -hmm. i was in baltimore for a little while yeah baltimore, well maybe he's from philly that's baltimore. right Baltimore's got its own things going on, I think. But yeah, I do yeah. know, uh, like hundreds of years ago, uh, Philadelphia was almost a city in Maryland, and there was this this crazy historical dude who, uh, like, was so convinced that uh, uh, Philadelphia was the prettiest city in Maryland, and would like fight with like police of the time uh, oh. about like like which state uh, Philadelphia was in. <laughs> wow. Well, that's where Josh Olsen is from, so maybe there's a rivalry there, and that's why he doesn't like it. I don't know. I'm yeah. curious why a, why an accomplished screenwriter would not like that movie, but I guess I'll have to take that up. But, uh, oh, the thing, the um, screenwriter I'm thinking of, one of the guys from Script Notes, that podcast, who wrote Scary Movie, and I was surprised to learn that he wrote Scary Movie because he's also written, like, you know, serious Screenplays, though, as in with this, there are a lot of serious actors who were in the Naked Gun. Imagine fighting to clean Philly. I feel like um, fighting, I feel like fighting to clean Philly is an incredibly Philly thing to do, though. Yeah, that's all they do. But nobody yeah. really wants to fight them, so they're just starting involuntary fights with people yeah. who don't and then, want like, and then, like, a riot to take over their city. Out. A riot breaks out or something among like <laughs> random fucking sports fans that everyone's like, we don't, we don't, we don't care. Like, yeah, one sure of my favorite batteries. One of my favorite videos is um, from when my Minnesota Vikings played the Eagles in the NFC championship a few years ago. Have you seen this? And afterwards, there's this nice Minnesotan woman who flew all the way to Philadelphia to watch. And she's just getting like yelled at and things thrown at her by people. It's like outside the stadium. And this kid's just like, go birds, go birds. Just like in her face. And she's trying to like, teach him a lesson about being polite um but but yeah it was surprising that uh there are it seems like there are a lot of um you think it's just a bunch of goofballs and stoners sitting around tossing out ideas or jokes in a room somewhere but they they actually hire like uh professional screenwriters who have written other stuff to do to do these spoofs and he described it as like it's a sprint um you just get as you throw in as many jokes as you possibly can and then you're done in like 80 to 90 minutes. And, and, it, and it seems like it either works really well or it fails completely. Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't think that there's, there's no middle ground where you're like, like, yeah, it's like half fun. I guess Naked Gun 2 is the only one that I could really say that about, like where it kind of half <laughs> works. And it felt like the jokes were starting to fizzle out a little bit. It's where the half comes from. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's because it's a half a good movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's Or it's half funny. Um, <laughs> but, but the first Naked Gun, I think, is, is incredible because of like just – how fast the bits come at you and like every single time you watch it you have to know like you notice other things like uh i really like i really like the line um when they're in the car at the very beginning and he's like everything reminded me of her and they go by and it's the building that just looks like tits <laughs> <laughs> 
I just love the fact that like everybody has like these great reaction shots in the scene and you don't always notice them because there's always so much going on. So, so like they have this one moment where like um, they're showing like all the, the baseball bloopers and um, you know, like, like right after the dude's head falls off um, they, they cut to like the, the, the sports announcers uh, booth and the guy's saying something and I don't know what he's saying. And just the one guy sitting next to him just looks mortified staring at the screen. Like, and it's, it's like, <laughs> But like, like yeah. you know, it's so understated because like something. And then, the, and then the guy next to him is, is laughing about it. And I was like, ha, 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 "Isn't that great?" The yes. other, the other, the other joke in that sequence that um is really funny is when they're introducing the whole panel, and one of them is uh, Dr. Joyce Brothers, who was like the the um psychological. She was like she was like a psychological um t- like talk show host back then. Uh, Joyce and, Brothers. Yeah. So like okay. so they're introducing all of these like actual ESPN these these actual um famous, real life sports like, guys yeah and then uh, Joyce Brothers is like a famous psychologist and like advice column mm-hmm. um, oh wow she first became famous for winning the top prize on the sixty four thousand dollar question but she's like a she's like a, a TV like she's one of those first like Doctor Phil type TV personalities that was like a psychologist turned TV really host. interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think some of those jokes like uh, don't really age well because they they um uh, they they're very much of the time. So so like uh, the whole part where he's like in there with Gaddafi and um uh the the um uh and and yeah uh, the, whole, the whole beginning they got the liver spot with for Gorbachev yeah that yes. ma- makeup session must have been fun and they also have a uh, Idi Amin which like who the fuck thinks of yeah. like him as a right. <laughs> yeah it, it, yeah and, and then like uh saddam hussein wasn't even there well, yeah. right that was before uh yeah. before gulf war but he was a mainstay just a few years later of all the other 90s spoof movies every spoof movie hot shots or probably the other naked guns had a saddam hussein make a cameo but i guess he wasn't he wasn't in the second one but the second one they had somebody um at the beginning um impersonating uh hw bush which is funny yeah Right, and it's not like they had anyone impersonating Reagan in this one, but I think in Airplane, um, there was like a line from a movie that I forget which line it was, but Leslie Nelson like delivers a line as if it's like a Reagan movie. Um, Mm. It you whoa, what if? See, this is what I was thinking about throughout the entire movie, especially after that first scene. I was like, um, this is a late Cold War film. This is about the Cold War, absolutely, and I'm trying to look up academic papers to see if anybody's theorized about you know daniel bestner has written a a paper (laughs) about the naked gun and its relationship to u.s hegemony um but i feel like we we he would he would yeah yes that's my favorite thing about like doing uh leftist podcasting is you just gotta like jam in some like political ideology to stuff where it doesn't quite make sense all the time like so so the game so the game we play kind of is that we try to connect reagan to every movie oh okay and that's yeah yeah, i feel i was about to say i think frank drebin is an analog for reagan yeah well at least that very first scene is definitely an analog for like the, the Reagan style foreign policy, which yeah. makes it incredibly interesting that it's kind of a time where our, our, I guess, era of foreign policy, like our era of us interventionism obviously is based on the middle East. So a, a lot of the conflicts that we kind of had over the last few, 
uh, the last couple of decades, like Gaddafi, obviously. And, you know, like all of, all of these Middle Eastern conflicts, I mean, you know, our conflict with Iran, which, you know, started in 1979, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, or with, with the Ayatollah. Yeah. Well, no, but I'm saying. Like, well, that, you know, that, that, con- this, that conflict, yeah. So yeah, this, yeah. this era of um, hostility between the, the Iranian government specifically right. and the U.S. government started in 1979. So all these conflicts are kind of developing. And it's kind of a, um, it's this weird moment where the Soviet Union is about to fall. And because I think it's 1987 that this movie comes out. And so, like, the Soviet Union is about to fall. So you're still kind of doing this Cold War thing at the same time as kind of developing these, like, Middle Eastern, like, terrorist-style um, conflicts that we have. So it's like you're – so when, when you look at that table that he's, like, pretty much, you know, beating the shit out of everybody at, which mm-hmm. kind of – he's the analog for American foreign policy. Um, you know, so it, you're still see, – you're seeing, like, this weird connection that they're trying to make between Middle Eastern conflicts and uh, the Soviet Union which I find incredibly interesting about that scene, which isn't something that, like, as a kid, I remember just being like, yeah, beat the shit out of all those, like, not knowing who any of those world leaders yeah. are. But you're also seeing, like, Yasser Arafat, who's not someone that we that we had, like, uh, you know, openly uh, hostile relationship to. In fact, like, during the Clinton administration, uh, you know, we were still kind of pretending, and during even Jimmy Carter's administration, we were kind of um, pretending that we weren't on Israel's side completely and that we still had kind of, uh, a, a two-state solution in mind, which obviously was never the case. We were always, you know, allied fully with Israel, but like mm-hmm. you still see him as as an like as an enemy at that table that's plotting with the Russians to. Right, it's us against it's us and Britain against the world, and that's kind of the one of the other themes is our our reliance, our special relationship with the UK, and our animosity towards towards everybody else. And it really, yeah, let, I feel like the bumblingness is obviously uh consciously or not i think says a lot about the time and and reagan specifically because he was kind of bungling through foreign policy bumbling through leading the empire um you know obviously a lot of his uh the people in his administration knew what they were doing and did some pretty nasty things with uh the leeway he gave them but like i just think about star wars the program uh, which from what I heard was like, he, he made, he just thought of that one day. He was like in his office. Oh, there we go. Is that for the, the, the movie franchise or no, are you a fan no, of the I'm weapons? I'm a fan of the, uh, the, the, the boondoggle of the uh, 80s. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we have Reagan calling every once in a while. We do seances and, uh, oh. you know, so he, you know, well, <laughs> oh, man. I think you're completely no, I remember, uh, There you go again. But I was, uh, <laughs> When I was a kid, whenever the uh, Star Wars program was first being talked about, I, I really wanted to like grow up, join the Air Force, and become an X-wing pilot because I thought that's what the uh, Star Wars program was. <laughs> that's okay. uh, that's the Space Force program, and that came you right. Know, that came under uh, Reagan 3.0. Right, right. Donald Trump. Sure enough, that'll be a possibility one day. But I, I guess with yeah, well, Star, we Star Wars, Star Galactic uniforms. Yeah. But I guess with um, Star Wars, he really did just bumble his way into detente because he thought of this ridiculous idea for a weapon system. And kind of like with Space Force, his uh, department heads were all like, okay, I guess we'll try to do this. Well, he literally, I mean, he, he outspent the Soviet Union, which yeah. if you looked at the Soviet Union and you didn't take the like the Cold War mentality. I mean, I don't think this is what Reagan did, but like if you looked at the Soviet Union 
in decline as it was during you know Reagan's mm -hmm. administration, as it was during the eighties. And you just thought we could outspend them. Like that's a, that's a pretty basic thought. Like we could we could build up stuff and we could outspend them. Right. And we were heading towards a certain direction under uh, Nixon and Ford with like detente. I mean, as like, but Reagan uh, Reagan tried to run against Ford in in nineteen seventy six and right. started this whole um, convention fight. And it was an anti-detente foreign policy platform, which mm -hmm. is like, you know, like instead of instead of um, like diplomatically getting out of the Cold War, like, why don't we just win the Cold War, which is insidious as fuck when you think about it. But yeah. I mean, it kind of it, it kind of worked because obviously the Soviet Union was so far in decline at that point that like if you just keep throwing money at them, like, like at, at our military, you know what I mean? Like if you keep throwing money at the problem, like at some point they're going to be like, all right, I guess, you know. It's time to give the fuck up on this. Right. I mean, and we're lucky that he did see the light, you know, in a sense, uh, be because he watched a TV movie about nuclear war and was terrified by it and shit his pants and was like, well, ooh, maybe we should rethink this. Um, but and people say like, oh, it's because of his jingoism and how tough he was with the Soviets and how he's willing to spend all this money that eventually got them to to fold and it easily could have gone the other way right it could have been like a cuban missile crisis thing that actually yeah, you know yes. went through like people were terrified in the 80s and rightfully so because he was running on basically bombing Ruth russia to smithereens for, yeah. for president and that could have happened and i mean gorbachev too was like a reformer if i if i remember correctly mm -hmm. i'm not you know yeah no well that's that's the joke in here where he says in some of their polls i'm more popular than their president is because gorbachev's entire thing was like let's try to modernize the soviet union like this has clearly failed uh like you know the ussr part of it has clearly failed and it's interesting gorbachev is still alive and still gives interviews like hasn't you know hasn't been killed off by Putin or anything. And once in a while, we'll like go on TV at different places and like criticize, you know, Putin's style of, uh, you know, lack of diplomacy, I guess. But like, I mean, Gorbachev was kind yeah, of, I'm not allowed to talk about that. But... <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm kidding. Right. I'm kidding. I can, I don't like Putin. Gorbachev onto the, uh, onto the show. That would have been great. Yeah. <laughs> have you ever seen his pizza hut commercial? No. Oh my it's... God. It's been forever. <laughs> You were you saw it when it was actually on air? Did it air in the United States? I, uh, something there was something. I, okay. I don't remember how I saw it. I know I've seen a Pizza Hut commercial with him. Uh, it could have been like like one of those things where like, oh, let's look at commercials from around the world. Yeah, you know, I, right. I, I, I remember those shows being on ABC, and they would have, and then we're like, we're we're going to go to a commercial break, but when we come back, more commercials. Um, but. <laughs> Uh, the uh, the Pizza Hut commercial, it's a restaurant in Russia after the Soviet Union has collapsed. And um, it's sort of strange looking at it from like a modern American perspective because there's a parent or a pair of parents with their kid and their kid is wearing blue jeans and has the, you know, the Jonathan Taylor Thomas hair. And it's like, which is which is something we've talked about on the show before, you know, the, the lack of uh blue jeans that you know have like existed in in soviet era russia right that was our yeah. main focus as americans like that that's what they're being deprived of that's the priority to bring andy's, the human andy's rights issue a, andy's uncle was a was a blue jeans smuggler really fisherman. yeah yeah he would um he was a commercial <laughs> fisherman and would meet out in the middle of the ocean uh with a russian uh sub so my, my cousins had like all the swag that was like um 
Uh, they they, they all, look like all the all the swag. Yes, all swag. the swag. Um, you know, all, all the the Soviet Union swag, uh, like buttons and stuff. And then like they uh, my uncle would get the vodka, and uh, he he would trade for uh, for like blue jeans, and and uh, uh, he'd occasionally bring some American drinks for uh, for them. Right, because they're didn't they like really hike taxes on vodka to combat alcoholism, and they made it like. Like you had to take out a loan basically to buy a bottle of vodka at some point. I, I don't know about that. Okay. I just know it was like like uh I think it was like whiskey. It was like oh, okay. like like Jack Daniels or or Jack, yeah, know, yeah. Jack Daniels. Jack Daniels. Yes. <laughs> um but oh in the commercial, so it's it's weird because the teenager is like, I like capitalism, and then the parents are like, We don't, we miss communism, you know, they call it communism. And then Gorbachev comes in. He's like, you know what we can all agree on? Pizza. So oh, they're all. I, I thought you meant a Putin, uh, a, a Putin uh, Pizza Hut commercial. I was gonna be like, holy shit! Oh, but, no. yeah, no, that that kind of that makes sense. I mean, it's kind of the same um, uh, Deng Xiaoping kind of thing, where it's you know, um, slowly like it doesn't matter if it's a white cat or a black cat. Um, that like you know, in China, that theory like slowly letting um, capitalism kind of. Uh, take its hold in right. in, a, in in a formerly so-called communist country um but yeah i mean i think it's i think it's interesting though that his line is uh he's like what in some of their polls i'm more popular than their president mm -hmm. like the, you know the, the inference is that he's working with these terrorist organizations in order to take down the u.s at a time when like the soviet union's in full collapse um <laughs> like literally i think a year before the soviet union inevitably does collapse yeah, because um, this was uh, this came out in uh, December second, nineteen eighty eight, uh, which would put me uh, in Texas after uh, after my move, because uh, we moved in November of uh, uh, that year, uh, and, and uh, you know I remember like getting in a fight like when the second season of Star Trek aired. I'm like, no, no, it was it was in nineteen eighty eight. It started because I moved in the middle of that, and I remember having to catch my episode of Star Trek, you know, on, at the uh, hotel after we moved. You know, well, like before we got our, our place, but like we had a um, uh, we were in a hotel for a couple of days. Word. And yeah. Killed our goldfish because the water was terrible. Oh no! Did, did, yeah. did you kill your goldfish by selling moonshine as vodka and poisoning people? <laughs> no, we changed the water, and, and the water in Cleburne was just so nasty it killed two of our fish. Like they 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 lived in a tank, you know, jostling around from Georgia to Texas, you know, which is like a. a three-day drive um and we changed the water and they died oh damn yeah oh i guess that's an interesting connection to uh thursday though when we talk about slacker <laughs> i'm sure there's going to be like tons of uh texas texas moving references mm. yeah i'm gonna have lots of stories about texas then <laughs> um but yeah i mean i remember i remember being a kid and seeing the gorbachev uh reference and then looking up Gorbachev to like see if his head really had that um <laughs> like had that uh birthmark on it and, yeah. and then I remember asking my mom like like what's wrong with that guy's head and she was like I don't know it's just a birthmark like <laughs> he's Russian yeah you're all made like that you can you can really I mean anything you can really let like you know like that happens you can be like well he's Russian and everyone's like oh, all right well <laughs> yeah <laughs> but that's just what happens at work right you just walk around it <laughs> At RT, and they're just like, oh, it's Russian. Yep, that's yeah. how we explain away everything. <laughs> Don't look too closely. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's it's interesting to me in the Naked Gun that, that that scene doesn't really come back up either. I mean, the only uh, the only the only reference to it really is that he meets with uh, Papschmir, which is a funny name for a for a terrorist leader. But Ricardo Montalban meets with uh, Papschmir later, and that's when um, David Zucker and like you know who directed the movie, like his mom comes in and he presses the Ricardo Montalban presses the button and like shows that he can turn people into sensory sensory based hypnotic victims or whatever which definitely doesn't make sense as <laughs> any kind of concept whatsoever but yeah. um it doesn't matter really. <laughs> that's yeah. the best part about it it just doesn't matter <laughs> but, yeah um, yeah no no go ahead oh no i was just gonna say the hypnotic thing kind of i've been in a uh <laughs> Kennedy assassination rabbit hole. So um, I have two this 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 summer. Oh yeah, that's been my thing. Yeah, yeah, Sirhan Sirhan. I you know I think there's a case to be made that he he was hypnotized. But it's funny because the part of the reason why it seems so ridiculous. I mean, it is just on its face like a lot to imagine. But it, because of um, the Manchurian Candidate, which yeah. this felt like kind of a a reference to. That's episode which two. Is, um, yeah, we did episode <laughs> ah. two, um, which is it's actually really interesting. We had uh, Gigi Michael on episode two, and then he interviewed um, Sirhan Sirhan's attorney recently. Oh. Um, yeah, which is I think that was like one of the few um, the few at least few podcasts that um, uh, his attorney agreed to come on. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure she's been doing plenty of media in other places, but um, mm -hmm. yeah. So we so we had him on talking about uh, the Manchurian Candidate, and we started out the show. You know, going full full circle, we had a we had a video, um, an old documentary or quote unquote documentary where uh, Reagan explained what Korean brainwashing does, and uh, during like after the Korean War. Whoa! <laughs> and that's where that's kind of where our, our Reagan connection game came from. Was that yeah. episode? Um, trying to see how many how many movies that don't involve, I mean, how many movies that do involve the Reagan era, but also don't involve the Reagan era that we can find references to something that we can connect it to Reagan with. Or make a weird parallel, or yeah. Have you watched any of his old movies, The Monkey One or Newt Rockney? I, I think as a kid I did because once again I was at, at this house in Maine, and really there wasn't very much at this library sale that we could find on VHS. So I remember watching um, Bedtime for Bonzo or whatever as like a kid, but you know, not not in not in recent times. I wanted to. I, I can't remember who it was that I wanted to come on and have them watch that episode or watch that movie and. There was somebody that I was like, they'd be a great guest for that, but I can't remember who it was. Hmm. Um, he was not a very good actor. Bubbles uh, from uh, Michael Jackson. <laughs> well, we he watched Sunset Boulevard uh, <laughs> last last week, and they have That's the, the dead. The, yeah, it is a good movie, but they have the dead chimpanzee that gets creepier and creepier every time you watch oh, it. All right. In the beginning, this. That's what she thinks that he's there in the house at the beginning for. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I I heard that Reagan's uh, wore polos because his head was too small. Um, I don't know if there's an actual connection between head size and intelligence. Uh, probably not, because if there was, I would be a genius. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know if we want to take this uh, show in that direction. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, I used to listen to a musician who, who uh, had a very large head and uh, I remember he uh, occasionally would do a show and he would just you know 
the last note, you know, line of the song, he'd just be like, I have a big head. <laughs> <laughs> well, who was it that um they had the they had the Sam Harris? Um who what what the fuck was the guy's name? Um that Sam Harris did the did the podcast with that um had the whole skull size. Oh, Charles Murray. Yeah, Charles Murray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Bell curve. Yeah. I I um I kind of have blanked that out of my head because I had this uh, this week where Ben Burgess did the Everything Wrong with Sam Harris episode, mm-hmm. and I had to watch um, like twelve hours of Sam Harris podcasts and cut them into clips. So I've like oh. I've, I've just submerged that deep down in like the traumatic part of my <laughs> of my God. psyche. That's rough. Yeah. Yeah. And then after you left, I had to do all the edits for the Michael Brooks one. For the Michael Brooks one. Yeah, because we did the episode with Richard Wolf and Michael Brooks. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't you, you had left that yeah. was after you left so so you weren't there anymore and i had to sit there and like watch all the clips and edit them and you well, know this was like the one year anniversary of his death so it wasn't uh, so a little rough but at least it's not sam harris yeah yeah, yeah. Listen to well, cause, cause, uh ben did ben did um everything wrong with jordan peterson and mm-hmm. it was like it was like a 14 hour Jordan Peterson binge watch, which I definitely still have not recovered from. And then he did Sam Harris like two weeks later or like, you know, a month later, something like that. So it was well, like, you know what he, he left. Was... <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I, I, I think that, um, I don't remember how we even got onto this tangent, but you were bringing up uh, skull size because of, uh, yeah. Joe Andrews made or uh, no, we're talking about uh, Reagan's head and the, uh, the polos. The polos. That's why I wore the polos. Does Frank Drebin wear polos? I think just suits. Right? Just that's suits. His, yeah. His yeah. Uniform. Because he changed in from one suit to another. The only time he's on in a suit is uh when he was uh you know in the tux uh as the opera singer or in mm-hmm. the baseball you know umpire uniform or when he was undercover as the uh, server in the um uh pouring the tea at right. the very beginning. But there's that joke he got something there's more that... comfortable. Yeah, yeah. There's that joke where he's like let me get into something a little more comfortable. I, I think there's also a connection to like an older American style of filmmaking in this, which is like the noir style. Um, it's kind of like a neo-noir movie in some senses because he mm. does the, uh, like, you know, because at, at the beginning, like the, the whole foreign policy reactionary bit that they do um, doesn't really come back besides uh, besides Papschmier being a character. And it seems like that's their that's their way of building a franchise out of it because he appears in the third one too. Um, mm. Or like some connection to like international terrorism and uh, wanting to murder the Queen of England. And I, the one line that I do think is really funny around that is um, when he's he's giving the the, the uh, press conference at the beginning when they're announcing that the Queen's coming to visit, and he's like, and he's like, as silly as having a Queen might seem to us, and uh, you know, <laughs> Tony Soprano's mom, Mayor, is <laughs> gives him this weird look. But um. Yeah, like the voice the voiceover that he gives the entire time is is incredibly um like neo noir, I guess. Um and, and right. so is so is like I mean the joke obviously when they're like oh um uh, naked gun in color, you know, like is 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 referencing the fact that it's essentially a, a noir cop movie. And the um he he has that he has that speech after uh him and Jane like hook up where he's like where he's like I had so many questions and he's like if he didn't know who did and well, and then he's like, he's like, and where the hell was I? And all of a sudden, you hear like all these jungle noises behind him walking through the city. Um. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, that's interesting because um, 
now to come to think about this kind of, it makes me kind of think of uh you ever see the long goodbye elliot gould from the 70s it was like i've seen, one I've of seen the, I, I was in a um in the war class and i saw parts of it it's uh it's robert altman right that yeah directed that. yeah 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 altman and i think it's one of not i don't know if it's the first but it's like one of the first neo-noirs considered neo-noirs mm-hmm. and it kind of has it's i mean it's nowhere on the level of naked gun but it is like comedic um not yeah. a not a spoof but it is it has like this kind of comic ironic tone um for being uh sort of like the fact that it's things seem chintzy in retrospect trying to make a noir in the 70s things were ended up being kind of chintzy and that was had a, a humor to it um and there was like like that self-awareness like he would drive this old car that like Philip Marlowe would drive and you know, the thirties and forties, but cause it was in the seventies, it was like a beat up old car from the, the forties, you know, a 30 year old car and not, not, you know, it was in that in between phase before they became restored and classic and venerated. Um, this is just an old hunk of junk at that point in time. And uh, it, there's kind of a similar tone to naked gun where it's like, this is a guy who's, um, not up with the times. He literally has white a shock of white hair. Uh, yeah. And and the thing is that the purpose of I mean the seventies are interesting because the purpose of noir kind of comes back I guess in the seventies. But the purpose of noir and pulp uh, novels originally is that the character of the private detective or the character of you know like that that style of character that archetype comes from the fact that you really couldn't criticize American society and say that it had failed in the way that like you know directors and um pulp novelists wanted to so mm-hmm. instead of creating a character that's like a vigilante that would go around you know solving these these crimes and beating the shit out of people you would have to have them have some kind of connection to the police force mm-hmm. um in order like i mean when it came to movies to get it past uh the haze code censors you'd have mm-hmm. to have like this connection at least so like they were a former cop that's going against um a corrupt police system or you know what I mean? Like they were they were somebody somehow connected to the police force that said, well, you know, the city's police police force is um, corrupt. So I'm going to uphold the law in the way that it should be upheld. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think by the time you hit the 70s and the 80s, like it, it's irrelevant kind of to have that style of, um, you know, that, that kind of story, because at that point, literally anybody could take take up that role. Like they don't have to have a connection to the police force because obviously at that point the Hayes code isn't going listen you can't destroy society in your movie like you can't mm. say that society is corrupt there's a consensus that you have to reach and like despite the fact that it's like literally the middle of the war or like the, the directly after the war like the post-war period like you can't you can't say that right now like you can't uh have a movie that kind of dissembles society and if you do the character has to be killed off at the end of it mm. um which kind of is, is the purpose of those characters. So it's, it's interesting to have those characters kind of be, um, I, it, they're kind of irrelevant, I think, at that point. I mean, Frank Driven's literally a cop. And then yeah. Because like, yeah, you had Death Wish in the 70s, and, and like, you know, um, which is kind of what noir became, uh, more or less. Yeah. Uh, like Vigilante? Yeah, we're, we're actually was saying that society's corrupt and and you mm-hmm. have a vigil he's not i mean you also have serpico at all right you literally have serpico you have al pacino going undercover and and you know 
um, upending the corrupt police force, which I mean, you know, Servico obviously was a real person, but like it's you, you, you don't have those restrictions anymore where it's yeah. like your character. And Chinatown was like a noir where you can really, you know, get into the corruption. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, Jay Hutch just has this comment where he says that uh, it's ultra American and that they were independent and they have their own code, but saved everyone. And like, but that, that is true. Like, I mean, it is the modern cowboy, but it's also at that point, like the, the Hays code is incredibly interesting to me. And it always has been like, as someone that studied film, because not only are they saying you can't do these things, they're kind of structuring your movie for you. Like, you know what I mean? Like I, I can't yeah. think of another code that censors things to the point where they're saying, listen, if, if this happens, if your uh, hero is a criminal, like you can't have an anti-hero. It just, it, it's going to make society fall apart. Like, your character has to get killed off at the end or they have to have some kind of moral, like moral reckoning. Like they have to either end up in jail or dead. Pretty much. Those are your two options. Like you can't glorify crime. You can't glorify um, these characters kind of destroying the, 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 um, you, you can't glorify these characters destroying society around them. And a few, uh, a few weeks ago, or I guess it's a couple months ago at this point, I had Catherine Liu on and we discussed um we watched these we watched a couple of uh, a couple different like modern chinese movies where they kind of had um one of them was the silence of wrath or the wrath of silence and um like you know characters kind of went against the system but it's not that the system in those movies was corrupt um because obviously like the system is the chinese government you know what i mean like so you could criticize big business and you could criticize like mining interests which was a big thing in the wrath of silence but you couldn't criticize the Chinese government, but you could kind of imply the Chinese government was um, was kind of uh, you know deluded and and bumbling and like didn't quite understand what was going on in these different mining towns. Like you can make them, you could make them, um, like so you could do you could make that commentary, but you couldn't make the commentary that Chinese that the Chinese government's corrupt. And similarly, I think in in noir films, like you can't say hey like. The police department's literally corrupt, but you could make it so that your character is solving a crime and, you know, getting past everything and, and society around them is kind of uh, falling apart. You know, like mm-hmm. the citizenry obviously can be corrupt, but the police department kind of has to get in the person's way and, you know, shut them down, but not in a way that would suggest that the police department itself is part of the, the crime, um, which yeah. is what I think was what uh, noir movies were kind of trying to walk that line very carefully. And this movie kind of does that as well because you have, um, you know, Frank Drevin being kicked off the police squad, and um, uh, you know, it's it's a little bit of that that seventies uh, and eighties um, action film uh, uh, staple where it's like you know one out of control cop, um, <clears throat> but you you get uh, it, it it also yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this, um, this, is a, this is a comment from Jay Hutch to you. Um, Jay Andrew could probably compare the Hayes Code to the Comics Code, which started later, and they turned Batman, who was basically a noir detective, into a much more of a cartoon. Yes, I absolutely could, and I could go on for hours. Uh, <laughs> I wonder if that in some ways sort of, you know, there's the old uh, was Robert Frost or somebody said, yeah, like a poem that doesn't rhyme is like playing tennis without a net. Did Were there some... I mean, on the whole, obviously, we're against these forms of censorship. But were there instances here and there where maybe they helped? Like with Batman, would we think of Bat- would Batman be as exciting if they if he had stuck to just gumshoe with, you know, a weird mask? 
Well, this is this is something that we kind of talked about, I think, with Sunset Boulevard last week, which is I mm-hmm. think that um, we talked about it with Joseph McBride when he, we, we had a really good conversation with him. And um, the Hays Code kind of forced film directors to be a lot more creative and like inspired, I think, than they would have otherwise been. Mm. Um, like, I, I think that the creativity of it is that you have to get around the censors somehow and you have to still kind of say what you want to say without, um, you know, being heavy handed about it, without being um, like, you know, you have to get it past the censors. So in, in some ways, I think that movies like when you give people complete freedom, as uh, Joseph was saying to us, when you give movies complete freedom, sometimes it falls apart because yeah. they're able to do too much and they kind of the vulgarity of it overtakes the message that you're trying to do. So I do think that there's some of that, but I also think that, you know, it, it definitely handicapped a lot of the stories that could have been told and really wrecked a lot of people's careers as well. So there's like, yeah, you know, it's that balance. Yeah. And it also had this impact to, to like kind of what you were saying earlier about the, the no anti-heroes rule. You know, you watch like Scarface, the original Scarface, and it's a really good movie. And the, I don't know if this is good or bad necessarily, but at, towards the end or like qualitatively. But uh, at the end, it's basically you find out this whole thing has been a public service announcement, right? It's like, no, 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 don't be a mobster. And it's one of my favorite Sopranos yeah. scenes is him watching that that part, Tony. Uh, but at the same time, like a lot of movies about, you know, like Spring Breakers or something like that, it's the, hard to take away. The, the message would be like, this is a good thing to do when you should be like these people at all. Right. Well, so you spring, can have that same sort the, of like the spring breakers. The only message I take out of it is like, this is, this is harmony Corinne creating like a 90 minute music video, which is, which is an incredibly filmed movie. But like, I don't like, I don't really take, I mean, I, I get what you're saying. I don't really take a message out of something like that. I'm that was like, maybe a bad, bad example, yeah, you know, but there are a lot of movies. Yeah. Well, there's like a lot of movies though that about antiheroes where that don't leave you necessarily wanting to be them, you know, and they do that without the heavy-handed, you know, yeah. Hays Code style. Yeah, I mean, I I think that um, yeah, I think that I think that you're right about that, and and I think that I mean, I don't think it's hard to make a movie about a an antihero and make it seem glamorous, right? Like, there's no. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only really time you could do that, I guess, is is if you. The, well, the Death Wish remake, they certainly made the uh, the hero glamorous, and they had like, a, was it Man Cow or whatever that guy's name is, the 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 conservative radio DJ, like. Well, maybe really? I'm just an upstanding citizen, <laughs> and, I, and I see the crime, and I'm like, you know what? Yeah. I'm gonna do things the right way. Yeah. No, the the Death Wish uh, remake really did kind of glorify him. Because uh, like like the first one is is actually really interesting like like legit the Charles Bronson Death Wish, uh you know which which really uh you know it's it's about the the city in decay and and he's he's taking you know uh, into his own actions, and and they didn't necessarily say it was a good thing or a bad thing they kind of showed both sides of it like like they were trying to it's almost like taking a, a science class in college now at. Uh, uh, where, where they teach by, uh, you know, evolution. They got to, they teach the debate and, and this, uh, you know, the original death wish was about the debate of guns. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very, um, you know, they had both basically, you know, the same argument that liberals and conservatives have been having for the past 50 years uh, was, was in this movie. Um, and then uh, the sequels got, you know, uh, well, the second ones just skip the second one. Um, <laughs> but the third one, the third one's amazing. Like, you know, uh, it's the opposite, the opposite of the naked gun. 
Yeah, no, the third one just <laughs> it's it's the funniest thing you've ever seen. Um and then the fourth one has any trail in it, but you know. Hmm. <laughs> I, I mean, I think that there is there's a propaganda purpose though to showing kind of the city in decay. Um mm -hmm. I mean, like it's kind of the capitalist realism thing, right? Like it's it's during the, the 70s, like the 60s and the 70s kind of leading up to it, show it like reinforcing the image that cities were in decay kind of allowed them to start stripping funding from cities and then boosting like boost law enforcement funding. So I, I think that I think that that kind of is propaganda with a purpose in a way that we don't necessarily um, fully register. But I also think in the 1940s and 50s, like in the noir genre, there's kind of a there's a purpose to, to that. And it's kind of that, um, you know, while while America seems to be undergoing this, um, you know, golden age, as, as they call it, like the golden age of capitalism, like things, um, there's like an underbelly of society that they're trying to point out without being able to really point out that it's society itself that's corrupt. That they're pointing out this this corruption and this degradation that they think is is happening um, as as the like as society seems to be flourishing in other ways. So I, I think that this is whenever whenever they like the settings of of these movies and the the environment and the milieu I guess that they really put themselves into um, plays a big role. And as censorship gets more or as censorship gets relaxed after the Hayes Code, it, it seems to be that these um, you can like it's very easy to tell what they're trying to say in these cases. But it's, it's interesting to me with noir movies, like at first, a lot of times you don't necessarily fully understand where they're going with it. Well, let me ask you this. What kind of city is L.A. in the Naked Gun? What is it a city in decay? How do, how do you guys feel it's presented? I mean, it's definitely corrupt, right? Like Ricardo Montalban is, is this big business interest on the docks that's secretly like a huge uh, crime boss. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a bit of like there's this weird zeitgeist that kind of started uh, a little bit in the 80s or really kind of took off in the 90s. And this might be like one of those steps uh, where, where like they were strangely anti-capitalist. Um, you know, if you look at like uh, anti-consumerist, I think. Yeah. And, and like uh, Naomi Klein kind of picked up on this in her uh, first book, uh, No Labels. What was a little no logo. Of, no logo. You're right. You're right. Sorry. <laughs> no labels is totally something. Um, <laughs> That's what no, they were going for, actually, with with no labels. They're trying to emulate Naomi. <laughs> <be> yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. But but like there's this this weird kind of um, 90s, like anti-capitalist zeitgeist that never quite like coalesced anything like hackers. Kind yeah. Of. Yeah. Hackers would be a good example where, where like the the private company was the bad guy but mm -hmm. like also um uh, i i i kind of apologize because like like i i have um i haven't fully thought you know i've been thinking about this obviously but i haven't really quite come to my conclusion of what what my thoughts are on this this concept but it but if you go through like a lot of the uh you know the, the, the this this era of filmmaking there there was a lot of like anti um capitalist uh saying that that the people at the top are corrupt and that's what you get in this movie like like they don't deal with street crime in this movie at all mm, um, yeah. you don't see uh like like you know a bank robber or anything like that and if you right. watch the, the uh um the police squad tv show which is brilliant by the way uh because i remember in the uh like 1990 uh uh whenever these movies were coming out uh they they, they actually 
put that back on TV for for uh, to promote the movie, and and it was amazing because I, I watched that. And I'm like, this show is so funny. Um, oh, yeah, I've watched them. I've watched the episodes on YouTube before. Um, okay. Like I, I I think that it also was it was amazing and it was also underappreciated, which is an interesting um, lesson I well, think that the Naked Gun film series took away from the TV series. Well, the thing with the TV series is it was uh, canceled because an exec thought it was too smart. Yeah. Oh. But he thought, like, he thought people couldn't follow the the show because you had to pay attention to get all the jokes. But mm. but I have this so I have this clip right here of um, Leslie Nielsen agreeing with that executive, which is like an interesting. When I say that, that's the lesson that they took away from it. Huh. Um, this is this is um, and this kind of starts to segue us, I guess, into um, what I want to talk about for the last thing, which uh, gets us away from like the political reality of it. But this is Leslie Nielsen talking about why the show was canceled and actually agreeing with the executive that it was um, too smart. Uh, and time passed, and I got a call. Uh, to uh, come and meet with them. They would like to talk. So I, I go over and they were talking about making a film, uh, which they were going to call, making a, a series, which they would call Police Squad. And would I be interested? I said, are you kidding? Would I be interested? Yes, let's go ahead. And uh, we did six shows. At the end of the fifth show, the series became, it had started out as uh, as 30, 35th and 37th and 42nd. It just wasn't working. This, for whatever reason, the series was not working. And But it was news across the lot at Paramount that, you know, it was a given. This is going to be the hottest success in television history. And you can imagine the tremendous disappointment, not just for me, but for Jerry and David and Jim, because it, 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 you couldn't believe it. And uh, Thermopolis, who was the head of ABC at that time, he said, uh, well, the series didn't work because you had to watch it. Well, it sounds funny and sounds dumb, but it was true. You had to pay attention. You couldn't look away. You had to watch that to make sure that you caught the humor or where it was coming from. And television, people don't really watch TV. They're around. That's where you can have a laugh track. You know, you can read a book and say, oh, what are they laughing at? What is it? Oh, yeah, that's funny. Uh, 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 well. And then go back. You can do anything you want, but you don't really watch TV. And the television screen is too small because in the in the uh, screening room, they had the like these things around here that look like screens. Uh, if it's big enough, you don't miss the humor. You don't miss a chance to participate in that humor because it comes out and hits you. That's why it works in the movie, because that movie screen can fall on you and you are not going to miss it. And you're not going to miss the, what, you, what, what is up there to be seen. But on television, that's why I think in TV you can have a good movie and a bad movie. You can have a bad movie on the screen at the movie house, and on television when they play it, it turns out to be not so bad or even good. It's because you can do your own editing as you're watching, and you're seeing this bad movie that was so bad on the big screen, 
and all of a sudden your brain says, now you're getting to the part where you didn't really like this because it was so stupid and so on. So that's when you look around and you say, I think I got to get that ceiling painted, get that thing done and maybe I'll do that. Uh, yeah, get, I'll scrape that paint off that uh, chair there and uh, get that done. And then you get back and you successfully edited it out of the story. <laughs> Interesting. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting to. I'm wondering Andy's thoughts about this because uh, he's kind of agreeing that it's a little bit too smart for a TV audience. Which I find really funny because uh, a few years later there was a great TV show called Sledgehammer, um, which lasted two seasons. It wasn't you know a runaway hit or anything, uh, which was making fun of like Dirty Harry and whatnot. Uh, he had a catchphrase: "Trust me, I know what I'm doing." He talked to his gun. Um, like the, the very first opening scene, you know, uh, there's like this hostage negotiation going on. And it's like, and you just see him pull open his jacket and pull his gun. And I was like, these guys are idiots. Hammer, who are you talking to? Nobody. And then then he uh, it's like, don't worry, I got this. He walks to his car, opens up the trunk, pulls out a rocket launcher, fires it right into the building, collapses the building, puts the rocket launcher back in his car. And he goes, there we go. Took care of the uh, the, the, the hostage problem. Was he named after off. Mike? Was he named after Mike Hammer? <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a, a nod to my camera. Yeah. <laughs> no, if if you've not seen the show, um, they do have like full episodes on YouTube. Highly recommend checking it out. Um, it, it's uh, you know not as not as funny as uh, the Police Squad series or, or the Naked Gun, but like it, it hit a lot of good marks. Like like it's definitely worth watching. Um, but it's just strange that like you know they kept doing uh, you know they kept trying to make this kind of satirical cop show like this because um, then a few years after that we got Cop Rock which was after the Naked Gun. Um, what do you what do you guys what do you guys think about? I mean this 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 applies to what you're saying. So the idea of kind of um, copaganda as satire, like you know what I mean? The idea that that like even even this kind of um, like satirical cop show kind of reinforces the idea that, that, you know, police are, it kind of serves as police propaganda. I think that there might be something to that and in, in a lot of instances, but like, that's kind of the danger you run with, you know, really making anything, any movie about whatever, especially if you're dealing with, with cops, it's hard to uh, make something that everybody will come out of the theater thinking, Oh, I dislike cops now, you know? Yeah. Um, but in this case, and like who, but like, I feel like anti-police films and anti-police, uh, TV shows have never really hit the mark either because they're a little bit too heavy handed. And yeah, there's yeah. always a good guy. Yeah. There, there's a good movie, uh, Den of Thieves that was actually suggested to us on, we had, um, Cerise Castle on Pod Damn America who wrote the article about the series of, of articles, I think probably making a book out of it about uh, the gangs in the L.A. Sheriff's with Department. Sorry? Was that with 50 Cent? No, this was with uh, Gerard Gerard Butler. Um, it was really good, it, uh, it, but it's about a gang in the L.A. who are, you know, L.A. Sheriffs. Um, and that, I guess, kind of, I mean, I don't know that a movie needs to be this is a pro or anti- um, anything movie. Um, but that I think was sort of an honest uh, portrayal of, of what these, these people well, are like. In the movie. What's that? 50 cents in that movie. Oh, he is. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. I guess I missed. Yeah, I oh, that's right. 
I forgot about that. I didn't know there's a sequel. Wow. Um, but yeah, that, but with something like that, there's always there might be the uh, the odd psycho who watches it and is like, "Fuck yeah, I want to be like that guy." Yeah. Um, and or, or sabotage is another good example. I haven't seen sabotage. What's oh. what's that about? Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger leads like a team of uh, um, drug, you know, DEA agents, and they mm -hmm. get betrayed, and they have to figure out like who who on the team betrayed them, and it's it's um, kind of like Training Day in a way, except okay. you know, it's an Arnold Schwarzenegger film. Um, so I don't know so, why you, you know, don't have a um, I don't know why you don't have a podcast where you literally just review every Arnold Schwarzenegger film. I would watch that. I'm working uh, my way through that with bad takes. We you know remember first episode was uh, Iron Mask, so you know we got a lot to do. A lot of work because we're only up to episode. We're going to do episode five. Yeah, um, it was funny when we did Total Recall, and I, <laughs> on, on on give them an argument, and I was in uh, I was still in Austin for that, and I was <laughs> um, and me and my Schwarzenegger story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I guess I agree that it's kind of a lone a lone psycho that sees something and is like, oh, I really want to be that. But there's also kind of a lot of work that's been done um analyzing like anti-war films for an example mm -hmm. and like anti-war films a lot of times like i mean full metal jack is a perfect example of it and i bring this up pretty often but like there's a lot of you know a lot of people that i've mentioned that have been like in the military and have kind of defected yeah. from that military mindset that like after full metal jacket came out like drill sergeants were literally quoting full metal jacket um as like part of their you know part of their 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 drills i guess um right. Like, you know, I mean, in some senses, people like to see themselves in movies, but in other senses, like even even anti-cop propaganda or anti-cop, uh, you know, themed movies, do they kind of reinforce the same, um, oh man, like cops are badass mentality. You know what I mean? Like, it's hard to know really what. Yeah. And that's what you well, think... sabotage. I mean, it's got a team of badasses, you know, doing really cool things, uh, smashing through walls and, and beating up the bad guys but like at the same time uh you know the, the you know uh, the question is who's the corrupt person i don't want to spoil the ending if you haven't seen it because uh, it really is a great twist at the end but um absolute you know all-time banger uh well, I, th <laughs> I think it was uh truffaut who said something to the effect of like that it's not possible to make an anti-war movie for yeah. the reasons that that's kind of where that um every time they kind of make a a a statement about it like full metal jacket or something like that they bring back that quote i think it was your father made that that statement yeah um cuz yeah i think with any of this stuff you always run the risk of like you know, people take it in that direction where they want to they're excited by it and they want to emulate the characters and then you'll probably have a lot of people who watch you know uh, Den of Thieves or whatever, and, and think, oh well, that's a movie. This is all made up. Yeah. The real sheriffs aren't actually like this. So yeah, you know, normal people that are are mentally stable. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Because like it's <laughs> what you should expect is that your you know the police force in your area is not uh, also a criminal organization. Uh, it's uh, it's most likely people you went to high school with that you probably don't right bring you over that. Yeah. But I guess for me, it kind of like I don't know if um, I I try to avoid absolutes in art. Um, yeah. But one, and I and I don't like the sort of tendency to that to sort of dismiss 
all artists having the capability of reaching people politically or having political content. But I don't know if it's uh, ex with some exceptions, if it's how easily you can sort of um, insert a message like X thing, bad Y thing, good into, into a movie. It, I think it can work sometimes. Um, but in a lot of cases, yeah, definitely didn't take the idea that you shouldn't talk about fight club into, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. What was rule two, dude? Come on. Um, but I yeah, I, I, don't I don't know if you should go yeah. for necessarily if you're a, a filmmaker or, I mean, do I, I, again, I don't think there should be any rules and that includes like be didactic if you want, if it works. Um, but it's it's difficult. I will say that to like have a message as simple as this thing good, that thing bad. Like there's other ambiguities here that it's probably that are probably going to come up. Um, I mean, I I think when it comes to Naked Gun, like bringing it back around before yeah. we kind of um, you know kill the stream at probably you know an hour and a half in. Um, <laughs> um, I think with Naked Gun, I don't do, think do, it really do your affects. best because I was going to bring up Pete Buttigieg. No, I I don't think it really affects things um, e either way. Like, I, I don't think that you come out of this being like, oh, man, cops are badass. I also don't right. think you come out of this being like, oh, man, fuck cops. I think it's kind of just like a bumbling police movie, which yeah. I think in, in this case is really all you can really hope for. I mean, you know, it's not like it's not Inspector Clouseau and, and the Pink Panther, like where you're like, oh, man, like someone can really do a lot of fucking damage if they're, uh, you know, if they're cops kind of bumbling their way through things. Mm -hmm. I don't think that that movie is like <laughs> anti, like those series of movies, I don't think that's really anti-cop either, but like, you know, like you leave those being like, wow, this is like a ridiculous thing I just watched. With this, you leave it with the same impression, but I think it's meant to appeal to as wide an audience as possible. Right. I mean, there's like a lot of clips of Leslie Nielsen being like, oh, a lot of cops liked watching Police Squad. And it's like, it doesn't make cops look good. I don't think it makes cops as a whole look bad either you're kind of watching an absurdist vision of um like society like it's not like it's not like you come away from it like having any real opinions about society in any way shape or form i do think that the the beginning scene is reactionary as fuck um right. <laughs> probably expressing the the you know i mean a generalized feeling of the time like i i think that reagan kind of um reagan was kind of the the person who uh poured the most cold water over like the liberal consensus that had existed under uh, LBJ and Kennedy and Truman and Eisenhower, like this kind of vision of, um, you know, like the poor deserve to be helped in a small capacity. Like, you know, maybe society isn't so bad. Like th this whole, like that kind of idea is kind of falling apart at the time of uh, like the Reagan administration, you know, Bush senior, like uh, down to Clinton, like, you know, kind of copying Reagan's style of, uh, politics so like mm -hmm. you know you're watching everything kind of fall apart around you and this you know the cold war the cold war kind of reached this fever pitch where it's like we can we can knock this out of the fucking park oh look there's a bunch of middle eastern terrorists allying with mm. the russians to like destroy the american dream <laughs> so yeah. i think that beginning scene is reactionary as fuck and and i don't you know like watching it as an adult watching it as someone that actually understands like the history of u.s politics like you know, I start to be like, oh, fuck, like this is this is not good. The rest of it, you know, just kind of feels like satire to me and it feels absurdist. 
I, I feel too like some of it's like what you can take away out you know what you take away what you want from it because mm-hmm. um, you could also argue that that scene was uh making fun of reactionary uh people but mm. like that's that's the thing though it's like like you could do something and, and you you take away whatever you put into it um and, and that's why like you know you can see that in in uh you know art you can see that in politicians which drives me nuts because like you know people put into uh Buttigieg or, or Kamala Harris um you know what you know their values right. and, but then like you know whenever you confront them like hey you know, Pete Buttigieg let this uh, eight-year-old boy die at a crosswalk because he took away the uh, crosswalk uh, and, and he uh, to run across traffic. March and Street. Time to go. And, and, and um, uh, you know, they, they're like, well, that's not my values. And they freak out because because they, they've created this identity. And, and uh, you know, same thing with, with movies. And that's why I think you see, you know, police really appreciating uh, the naked gun because they really do think, you know, to think if they take away my gun, the next person I kill, I might get arrested for it. Um, yeah. Which is like one of the best lines to that. <laughs> yeah, like to, to think, to think if I kill a citizen, I might get arrested for, for it. Yeah. Figuring it out. There's the other line in, um, in the Naked Gun, uh, the, the second one, where he's like, where, where they're honoring him for, during the Bush administration, they're honoring him for killing a thousand drug dealers. And he goes, well, the, <laughs> and he goes, well, the last two I just hit with my car or, you know, I just ran over with my car. Luckily they turned out to be drug dealers. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's kind of the, yeah, the unfiltered like police security state id. Um, yeah. This, to me, it was, this really is a movie about the end of the cold war. Like there's this, uh, Grumshy quote that um, I've heard on podcasts. I have not read it uh, from the from Pete Buttigieg's dad's translations, but uh, a quote <laughs> I have yeah, heard. That's that, fucking wild. That's so fucking yeah, wild. Yeah, it's yeah. I also love the fact that Donald J. Uh, Harris is Kamala Harris's father. Yeah, right. No, the two the two children of uh, of of Marxist like academics are both like the most uh, centrist. Um, like careerist politicians that really you know of our of of that generation at right. least. Like, it's like the russian pizza hut commercial you know children are always going to rebel um but the uh i don't want to hear it? about hegemony anymore dad yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's really interesting <laughs> it's really interesting to listen to interviews with uh what was his name peter Bud- no not pete that's that's pete uh joseph buddha judge um because he has this he's maltese and he has this very like it's like from a, his accent it's like from a movie of just somebody doing broad european accent but he's this very soothing voice and is talking about um cult, you know hegemony and culture and the long march the institutions and all that stuff but there's this quote from gramsci that naked gun reminded me of um which is about the the new the old ideology has died, but the new one has not taken over yet, and that kind of is what the naked gun feels like. Like it's where they're at the end of the Cold War. The Cold War is still going on. The U- Soviet Union is still there, but it's harder to stir up enough passion to keep waging the propaganda war in 1988. Right? People are kind of done with it. Like let's move on with our lives and the, the people who are still fighting it are, are bumbling their way through it. Um, and they're, you know, American and, and British. And that's our, like, 
<laughs> they we can barely keep it together there without like accidentally throwing up on the queen. Oh no, that was Japanese president who HW yeah, threw no, up it was, on. It was, it was, it yeah, was, uh, senior in the Japanese. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, but but Not yeah, like, do I mean, it. Not do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, and and I think that I think that that's that's well taken, and I think that there's also a very awkward relationship between the U.S. and um. England that kind of comes out, especially in this movie, where it's like they still have a queen. They're kind of yeah. um, this. They're kind of this ancient empire in some ways to our to our kind of bumbling, like bumbling but modern, like you know, um, like almost tense uh, empire of like, well, like we we're allied with like these these older um, European powers, like England, but like we don't really get why the fuck they have a queen still, right? So yeah, they get. Why can't Libya, Libya can't have a dictatorship, but England and London yeah. and Britain can have a monarchy, you know? So there's, I, and I think that that tension definitely comes out within this too, where it's like, you know, I mean, as much as Thatcher and Reagan kind of get along famously, um, like it, it's not, it's not a perfect, it's not a perfect marriage. And these, um, you know, at this point, the thing that they're really parodying and the thing they're really lampooning, I guess, is the, these weird, um, uh moralistic or like manner like the, the manners of it you know what i mean like mm -hmm. like frank driven is not challenging the system itself he's kind of bumbling through these niceties that you need to do with the queen like where you know where you're supposed to be like act a certain way around the queen and you're supposed yeah. to act a certain way around uh dignitaries and we're not really ever going to follow through with those rules because like we don't really understand the the, the i guess the monarchy anyway mm-hmm um, so he's kind of, so, so what he's really, I mean, the manners are what they're kind of parodying, right? Like the, like, uh, Tony Soprano's mom mayor, um, right. <laughs> seems to be almost like Thatcherite in her appearance and like right. is, is awkwardly kind of sitting next to the queen at a baseball game and neither the mayor or the queen seems to understand like, you know, the common people and why they need to be at a baseball game. Like they're kind of looking around weirdly, like the whole thing. And, and Leslie Nielsen's kind of like. Leslie Nielsen, you know, at the end of the movie, like Frank Drebin saves the day, obviously saves the queen, all of this, all of this um, di different, like, you know, uh, comes out as the hero, but like maybe the way that he's doing it is, is purely American and doesn't quite understand like the, I guess the, the manners that need to exist um, mm -hmm. for the ruling class to continue their alliances. Right. I remember Patrick Stewart, um, was talking about how he uh, he he met uh, Warren Ellis, who wrote uh, one of the great comics, uh, Transmetropolitan, and the main character in there's name is Spider Jerusalem. That's important for the story here. So, um, uh, when Patrick Stewart was meeting Prince Charles, he's like, he thinks to himself, "What would uh, Spider Jerusalem do if he met Prince Charles? I know, I should headbutt him." <laughs> Which, would have been he, didn't, awesome. he didn't offer him some tacos. No, no taco, tacos. Tacos. <laughs> we watched Dune, and uh, there was an interview where Patrick Stewart said tacos. There's, there's an interview where Patrick Stewart was like, "Oh, I went out with my coworkers, and every night we'd eat tacos." And this, <laughs> but it's a similarly like, not really understanding the the casualization, I guess, of of American society, right? Um, in the same way that it seems like Frank Driven doesn't understand like the, the, uh, the, the manners and the, the formalities around um, saving the queen. Yeah. And, I mean, it's a pretty hilarious scene where he ends up like just, you know, 
like pretty much molesting the queen on the, on the front page <laughs> of the newspapers. But like at the same time, obviously <clears throat> Ricardo Montalban, who kind of represents this like uh, old style consumerist, like, you know, dock worker, um, uh, you know, like, like the, the old style, like dock boss, you know, that he doesn't trust is pointing the gun at her. And, you know, so like logically that makes sense to us as an audience that's supposed to um, like, it makes sense to us as an audience that's supposed to like, uh, um, understand Frank Drebin as our hero, but obviously doesn't make sense to people who are, you know, fully um, supposed to be uh, in that in that state where the formalities are respected. Right. Yeah. Um, I've it, it's it was the one of the funniest parts to me was when the Queen passes the hot dog, right? Because that's kind of her finally understanding what it means to be an American. Yeah, um, and they did the same thing. The where they're doing the wave. Yeah, and, and yeah, the, and the mayor, the mayor looks more awkward than the queen. Uh huh. <laughs> the queen is finally kind of um, succumbing to the American tradition, the American right. rituals, in a way that even the mayor can't seem to bring herself to do. Yeah, because that's what Americanism is. You know, Rocky Four taught us that. But it, but right. it's kind of it's kind of also <laughs> lampooning. I mean, I feel like it's kind of lampooning like the Thatcherite, um, like the queen going and 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 seeing like uh, like. When when uh Thatcher visited the Queen in um what like what's her Scottish like that Scottish summer house and Thatcher visited the Queen's um you know summer residence and mm. like the Queen was kind of fully fully embraced um that like like that summer summer like casual mentality and Thatcher couldn't bring herself to do it and was like why can't I keep working? Huh. <laughs> Interesting. You know what was the strangest part of the movie to me was the scene towards the beginning where Mayor Soprano is giving a speech and Frank Drebin goes to the bathroom. And for some reason, we hear everything he's doing in the bathroom. That, that's like the joke is he's being. Well, he has the mic. In, he, he, he oh, the that's yeah. right. That's he's right. The okay. mic didn't work at first. And so he was like, here, take mine. So he put on that mic, never turned it off. Ah, that's speaking, right. of the, speaking of the bathroom, I gotta, I gotta run and. and okay. I'm not gonna leave my. Here. <laughs> you muted yourself, bro. Oh. oh, is he coming back? He he will. Yes, he just. Okay. That's awesome. <laughs> he just booted himself off for a joke. <laughs> or what, maybe what? he's actually going to the restroom. <laughs> I would assume so. Yeah. What was um. So what was Leslie Nielsen's career like before The Naked Gun? Uh, it kind of died because uh, basically he, he was a serious actor. Um, mm -hmm. The studio system kind of dried up and he never quite found that second act like a lot of actors kind of did after the studio system changed. Um, you know, like William Shatner was always like the second hand in uh, Westerns and then um, was able to, you know, use Star Trek to launch himself into being a... Uh, uh, a leading man of sorts. Um, uh, and there's other like smaller examples like that th throughout the, uh, uh, throughout the studio systems. Like some people were successful at it. Others, Reagan, for example, uh, you know, was really good at the politics of the studio system. After the studio system kind of collapsed, he wasn't very good at uh, landing those roles. Yeah. Um, so, so you see, um, and I think, I think what, uh, if I remember correctly, Leslie Nielsen was kind of in that uh, one of those people who kind of like, couldn't find his footing after the studio system collapsed because uh, I don't really remember him in much uh, up until airplane. 
an airplane, he was able to rebrand himself doing comedy, uh, but doing, you know, the complete serious deadpan uh, uh -huh. that he does, uh, you know, mixed with the physical humor. And, right. um, you know, if you go from his career at that point on, I mean, um, you know, even like his great performances, like in uh, Men With Brooms, which which his performance made me cry. Um, uh, you have a... This is a, a dramatic role? No. Um, no. He, the, the first scene he's in, he's like uh, getting cow poop, like like sticking his hand up a cow's ass to get sure. the shit out so he can grow mushrooms so he could trip balls most of the movie. Um, <laughs> so it made you cry from laughter? No, no, no. But his his arc did like like he, he okay. there was a lot of comedy. Um, it's like a dramedy kind of thing. It's about a curling. Um, it's about four guys trying to honor their old curling coach, and they bring in Leslie Nielsen because um their curling coach died, and he's like, I want you to take my ashes and win the game, and, and uh, so that's the whole the whole drive of the film. And mm. Leslie Nielsen is like uh like one of their fathers. They have like this strange relationship, and and it's it's a very sweet film. Um, it's very Canadian, and, and uh, I, like I said, Leslie Nielsen will make you laugh with all the fart jokes and you know talking about like you got to stick your hand up my cow to get the best shit out so you can make the best <laughs> mushrooms to, to um, you know making you cry, and, and yeah. that's that's the beauty of that movie. Um, but you know even like Dracula Dead and Loving It, which is also one of his best films too, I, I would argue, um, he he kind of stuck to comedy uh, even on the small screen. Do South I had mentioned. Uh, I think before we started streaming, Due South was a, um, uh, uh, it was kind of a, you know, like a dramedy. It, it, mm. was, it wasn't really funny, haha, uh, but but it, it was like absurdist in a way. Uh, but it was also a cop show about a Mountie who who was uh, solving crimes in, in uh, uh, you know, with an American cop. So it was like this clash of cultures. And uh, he had a deaf wolf who could read lips uh, named Ethan mm. Baker. Like, like, it was funny, but then like Leslie Nielsen shows up and he's like falling off his horse as a Mountie and yeah. and just being and farting all the time and, and it, a regular <laughs> doesn't do right. It, it, it absolutely, uh, but like you know those episodes were hilarious. The the ones that he did. Uh, so so you well, do so this see, is, yeah. Like, so like, this is this is um I, I wanted to bring this into your to what the point that you're making. Um, quickly, this is uh David Zucker who directed Airplane and who directed Naked Gun. Um, talking about the deadpan um, style of comedy that he wanted from Leslie Nielsen and, and how he ended up hiring him. So this is the last clip I'm going to play before we um, shuffle off this mortal coil, I think, as they say. <laughs> the concept of the movie was to not cast, you know, Harvey Corman or Dom DeLuise at, who were at the time. Those are the guys in movies, Mel Brooks, you know, and, so we, Robert Stack was the only one who was our first choice. The others, there were other people in line. Les, when we got to Leslie, which was the fourth one after uh, Stack, Bridges, and Graves, um, Leslie, uh, four guys, four other actors had turned down the role. And, uh, and so we went to our casting director at Paramount. We said, how about let's get this guy who was the captain of the Poseidon and he was in Forbidden Planet. We didn't even know his name, but there's that guy. I mean, nobody knew his name. And his name was Leslie Nielsen. And the, the casting director who had, was already frustrated at having to cast, you know, his name was going to go as casting Robert Stack, Lloyd Bridges, and Peter Graves in a comedy. He's coming in so fast. Watch your speed. He's coming right at us. 
being too hot. He thought it was the end of his career. So he said, he had just exploded. He said, Leslie Nielsen, Leslie Nielsen is the guy you cast the night before. And we were already, we were three <laughs> weeks away from uh, starting production. So, um, but he, he uh, you know, when the movie came out, he was very proud of it. Oh, I bet. And he just practically stole it. I mean, he was amazing. Can you fly this plane and land it? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Yeah, he emerged as the guy because he and in the in the first like the table read, he was putting a little spin on it. I mean, there's nobody had ever done this before. Doing a comedy with an absolute straight face. Wow, that was yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like he just knew the B movie like the back of his hand. So yeah. he knew exactly the beats and like everything, how this is supposed to go. And he knew it so well. It's kind of like when, uh, I don't know if people have like been in plays or whatever, you know, when you, you get a certain point where you're rehearsing and reading your lines, uh, where you've done it so many times, it's just through rote memory that you're kind of like joking around with it, you know, yeah. with the pauses and the beats and, and that's, you know, Leslie Nielsen from uh, being an actor for so long in serious roles knew how to finesse it just ever so slightly to make it hilarious. But he also, I think, thought about it as kind of tanking his career. Like, yeah. there's a lot of interviews with him where he's like, you know, I knew that once I was kind of known for this style of filmmaking, they're not ever going to hire me to be in anything serious again. So, right. like, I, I watched, like, the Forbidden Planet scene where he's, like you know what i mean like where he's he's on the he's on the planet and they start like you know like shooting shit at like the poseidon and he's like super serious throughout that whole thing and it's it's just fascinating to think like it must have been that you know roles kind of dried up for him for mm -hmm. that 20 yeah. year period between you know um airplane in, in 1980 and uh forbidden planet which i think it was like 1950 something 55 mm -hmm. if i remember correctly yeah so it's 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 fascinating because he seems like but then he kind of you can watch like you can watch each movie like he leans into it a little bit more and and at some point he started bringing around like a fart machine that like he literally just <laughs> press it and it, like just you know it farts so he would like be in the middle of talking and his comedic timing was amazing but like yeah he'd be like yeah like I like he'd always be like leading up to it in a conversation and not tell the person he was gonna do it and then he'd like like you know like go because it was like one of those things that is like this and then it like farts so he like almost like a like a I don't know, like metallicized uh, whoopee cushion, and he would just press it, and in the middle of a random interview, like when he wanted to just kind of fuck with the interviewer, and he even did talk like about OJ. <laughs> like that's yeah. like because he just farted. <laughs> but it's like he kind of leaned into this role after that. Yeah, this is interesting. I'm looking at his Wikipedia page right now, and the last movie he was in before Airplane and the big comedic turn happened, was a made-for-TV movie. It was a drama where he played a governor, the governor of Ohio, who uh, there was a farmer. Leslie Nielsen is John Kasich. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> yeah. There's a farmer trying to, to stop a nuclear uh, power plant from being built, and he was like the governor who the guy had to lobby. And then he, he went comedic. Yeah, so they're not 
<laughs> they're not bringing their best their best roles for uh poor leslie there i guess not but <laughs> interesting a, a didactic sort of premise uh yeah. Well, I mean, I guess you, there's really, there's two role, like you, there's two ways you can go if you're at that point, right? You can either become Reagan and, and become the evil, the evil dementia villain that takes over um, American society. Or you can become Leslie Nielsen and just start doing, uh, you know, just satire roles. Mm -hmm. it, it, it would be, it would be funny if there was like a, like, like an offshoot of this universe where they like Reagan was the Leslie Nielsen. And Leslie Nielsen. Was yeah, great. holy <laughs> shit. Well, he's Canadian, though, so I guess he would be prime minister. Right. Who would he have been in office? Uh, who was Canadian prime minister in the 80s? Was that Trudeau's dad? Uh, Trudeau's dad, I think, left in the 80s. No, okay. he, he left and came back. But like he was in uh, like late 60s, early 70s, left and then yeah. came back. Yeah, Trudeau. Uh, and I don't really remember off the top of my head, um, because you know I'm not Canadian, even though I can speak a lot about Canadian politics. <laughs> oh, so he came back in the '80s, apparently. Yeah. 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 I, I'm. I don't remember exactly uh, what years or anything like that. So, so I. Um, and then I don't remember who was who was in office for a while because. Uh, uh, did Did Canada have that moment that? the u.s had and that france had and that um england had that like neoliberal turn like because you can you can trace it in all of those countries like you can trace the moment that we kind of yeah. turned to neoliberal it was after it was after trudeau because trudeau was uh trudeau pierre trudeau was really good uh mm -hmm. you know nothing like his son you know his son is the pete Buttigieg, you know, he, he was he was, kind of, uh, he was kind of the he was kind of like a liberal titan in the way that i mean I'm, well, one person you kind of, I guess, bring up is like Mario Cuomo in New York State, but you know, like a a, a liberal titan, right? In the way that, yeah, like, but like he was like for gay rights back in the seventies, and yeah, and, you know, he he was he was way ahead of his time. He he uh, uh one of the big things Trudeau did is uh open up immigration. Uh, Jay Hutch, up Jay Hutch says Mulroney. Oh, uh, yes, Mulroney. that sounds right. That sounds right. Um, okay. Yeah. But I guess I'll ask Jay Hutch in the chat, like, is is there is there a moment like there was in because we've talked about it, we've talked about it with Thatcher, right? We, right? we watched Snowpiercer, so we talked about like the Thatcherite moment, and obviously we've talked about Reagan, and we've talked about um like like France's France had that you know in 1980 or 1979 had the neoliberal turn, um, right? Even with a socialist in office, he yeah. was like, whoa. Yeah, Whoa. no, I mean, but and, yeah. and it was, and it was literally that moment that the that the um, comic Snowpiercer came out, um, at, at the same moment that you know it finally in the eighties. Yeah, mm -hmm. like that. The really? 80s. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so it, it kind of um, you know, not socialist is a weird way of of saying someone that murdered a lot of African leaders. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Mitterrand? So, socialism at home. And yeah. uh, imperialist abroad. Yeah. Yeah. Mitter Mitterrand is Mitterrand is en enemy of the show. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he wasn't a woke socialist. Well, I mean, no, he he was. So the Mitterrand moment is a tragic moment for France because I mean mm -hmm. we talked about this in the Snowpiercer episode. Um, he finally kind of won office with communists in his uh, 
you know, he had, you know, the, the, he had his like allies and he had communist allies for like the first time that France really had that, um, you know, when the Cold War started to wind down. And Mitterrand's great, like, great turn towards, um, you know, great turn towards neoliberalism happened after his his platform that he had won with was like the most progressive uh, left wing platform that France ever really had. Mm-hmm. I mean, while he was a an avowed imperialist um, in Africa and yeah. you know in, in all of France's uh, neo colonial friends, um, <laughs> like it, his 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 platform for France was supposedly like the most progressive they ever had and it fell apart within a year of him taking office yeah in this in, in a in a coalition that involved like communists like he he was the first real french prime minister to like have um or french like president to have communists within his um within his coalition right. so it makes it like a, an incredibly sad moment i literally have a picture on my desktop to remind me uh, how bad mitterrand is of uh Mitterrand standing with uh Thomas Sankara. <laughs> oh right. Yeah, they had a funky relationship. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's like so it's like I mean even even at its best, like even at its best version, it's um you know, like socialism for for me and not for thee. But like even even by that uh by that standard he fails. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is my, this is my, um, I have this picture on my desktop from helping, um, Michael Brooks and, uh, wow. yeah, with, with, with the Thomas Sankara documentary last yeah. year, two years ago. <laughs> I think I watched the, that one. Yeah. Yeah. Vic and I, Vic and I, um, made that with Milton Alamadi and, uh, Michael Brooks. But, oh, tight. Yeah. That was a good one. Yeah. So, but it, it's like, so even, even in its biggest form, you know, his like, I think it's like a hundred principles or something turns out to be bullshit, you know, as soon two and as a half principles. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I don't know. So it, Mitterrand is, is my great, um, it, 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 it's a great example of how even as a socialist, you know, socialism doesn't, um, necessarily, uh, like you can be a socialist and it still doesn't mean that you're right. You don't, uh, you don't snap your fingers and change the the system. Honestly, that's what I was kind of scared, scared about with uh, Bernie. Although U S is a little more powerful than France, but like, (laughs) I don't know. France is pretty powerful and couldn't, couldn't hack it. Yeah, no. I, and, and, you know, I, I, Mitterrand didn't really try to hack it with, France's colonies because yeah. it's a similar thing to like the LBJ thing, uh, which is you know right. I mean kind of ironic because uh, LBJ kind of takes over. I mean as does Kennedy kind of takes over their Vietnam policy, but um like you know doesn't like as a socialist doesn't want to be like oh like you know we tried socialism and it lost us all of our colonies like it lost us our imperial designation. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden you're kind of doing more progressive policies and obviously lbj is like just a liberal but still like it's just like you know oh we, we elected a liberal or you know i mean first we kind of got a liberal but then we elected a liberal and it and it lost us vietnam right like, pe- people don't want to be in that position so Mitterrand becomes like a socialist at home imperialist abroad which is fucking terrifying yep <laughs> um but yeah so I guess this is probably a good place to um, end this. I'm going to do my usual um, final thoughts for, for each of you. Um, 
Andrew's first uh, final thoughts on this movie. I mean, yeah, like I said, I think it's a it's a uh, late Cold War movie. It's it's about the end of the Cold War. It's about bumbling through diplomacy and empire. Um, and that's it's Frank Drebin is Ronald Reagan. I I've never thought about it that way, but it makes sense, you know, in retrospect. Like, um, and it's, and it's also interesting because they like cribbed lines from um, Ronald Reagan movies for his airplane. Uh, because airplanes obviously coming coming mm. out as, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but Andy, well, um, I gotta say, uh, Ricardo Montalban was a mermaid in this movie, <laughs> uh, because he had that fish tank. Um, oh, so at night he would at night he would go into the fish tank. Exactly, exactly. Uh, that's why he came back whenever uh, Frank Drevin actually set his office on fire. Um, that's something kind of like a. I'm pretty sure there's a deleted scene. I don't know this for a fact, but uh, we'll go with that. Um, other than that, it, it's uh, did, you know, did he rescue? Favorite? Did he rescue his pen from episode, from uh, from Emperor Hirohito? Yes, and that's why he knew about the weakness of water. All right, he um, he says that weird. He, he's like he's like I got this pen as a gift from Emperor Hirohito. <laughs> I think he's trying to do a Japanese accent. Yeah, no, he just, is. He's definitely trying to do a Japanese accent, and it fails. Yeah, he's just. <laughs> so awesome as Ricardo Montalban. Like, his accent's perfect. You know, that's yeah. why Khan was so great. Um, Anders, Anders looks uh, a little bit confused about the whole mermaid thing, I think, still. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's become a running <laughs> gag that I try to work in how everybody's a mermaid in, in the films. Oh, we, 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 did, had, uh, so we had Doug Lane on uh, from mm-hmm. Zero Books. Mermaid. And, yeah, he was a mermaid. And, uh, no, so we had him on, and we watched the movie Local Hero. Um, oh, great movie. Yeah, in so Scotland. I, I, so I've never, so I never watched that movie until that point. I don't think Andy had either, or had you? Oh, no, so, I never so, did. So we watched that movie and we talked about it with him. And at the end of it, Andy's, uh, Andy's diagnosis was that everybody returned to the sea and they were silkies the entire time. And um, Doug Lane was very confused and said, <laughs> I, and asked Andy if he was off his meds. And <laughs> so ever since then, we've, uh, we've tried to work that into every, like, trying to figure out how we can work that into every single movie that we watch. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, this shows nothing but just running jokes. It's Ronald Reagan and mermaids. <laughs> Ronald Reagan as a mermaid. I wonder if he ever played one. Or if he was one. We'll never know. Yeah, we'll never know. <laughs> He's now returned to the sea. Um, I Also, I need to point out that it was a lionfish in Ricardo Montalban's tank. I don't think anyone's right. ever called that a Japanese fighting fish. A Japanese fighting fish is a beta fish. It's the it's the thing that you buy in those tiny tanks. Beta. So it was a it was a it was a bit weird, I think, that he's like the Japanese I think he was trying to connect it to the pen that he got from Emperor Hirohito, but I don't know. It was weird. Yeah. Anyway then, then, yeah. that's that's my final thought. It was weird. So um <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna call it here for the night. Thanks for thanks for coming on, Anders. On yeah. The short notice. Um, Absolutely. Let's let's. I mean, I want to have you on for a movie that like, you know, that you're actually like excited to do. Last night. Well, if we can find some, I, I, do, <laughs> I do agree with Andy's uh, point that we should probably get like a Native American leftist of some, you know, of, of, of some notoriety to who doesn't of- hate it, which might be hard to find. <laughs> Well, even if they do hate it, it would be... Yeah, okay, fair. 
Yeah, it's, it's a great movie, except for the fact that uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, I mean, they should have, in retrospect, cast an indigenous actor, but, but that is really, what it is. He really, you know, he can play anything. Yeah, true. He play, I he mean, he play. is he is a white guy in the movie. It's not like he's doing... Uh, yeah. yeah. I remember watching it in high school. I haven't watched it since then. Um, I do have to say here that uh, we'll be back on Thursday, and um, we have... Matthew film guy coming back to uh, watch slacker with us. And it's the first movie that I haven't just said, Hey, Matthew film guy, you want to jump on our panel? And he's actually suggested. So I'm actually excited for that. Nice. Um, I gave the movie three and a half stars on letterbox, but you know, all right, well, I'm going to say left is best. (laughs) 